1: For a seven-day free trial.
2: Hey everyone, it's Dave Asprey with Bulletproof Radio. Today's cool fact of the day is that scientists just found a bacteria that's the first ever that can infect an organism just by touching it, rather than, bre- rather than by basically reacting to the organism's chemical signals, which is what most bacteria do. Because this bacteria has the ability to infect only through contact, the Pseudomonas, And this is a word I have not yet learned how to speak. Ariginosa. (laughs) And I could tell you that today's guest is going to fix that for me. It can affect humans, plants, and animals and surfaces, making them way more diverse than normal other bacteria. And since they don't respond well to antibiotics, it's a little bit more dangerous as well. So it seems like every time we look at bacteria, we're finding something new and interesting.
1: What if there was a way to feel younger for longer? Well, there is. All three of these are in an amazing formula called Qualia NAD+. Check out Qualia NAD+, risk-free, for up to 100 days at neurohacker.com slash dave15 to save an extra 15%. That's neurohacker.com slash dave15, Qualia NAD+. It's what I use.
2: Which is why today's guest, Les Deathliftson, is on the show because he's a staff scientist at the Roman Lab at Stanford University and has been for more than a decade with a PhD in microbiology and ecology and evolutionary biology, which is kind of cool. You've heard from people like Emily Deans who are evolutionary biologists, but tying this back into microbiology is, well, way cool because this is the stuff you don't see easily, but evolution happens a lot faster with these little bugs in your gut and that's why Les is on the show. Les, welcome to the show.
3: Thanks, Dave. I'm glad to be here.
2: Tell me how to say Pseudomonas
3: aeruginosa.
2: <laughs> See, I knew I said it wrong.
3: <laughs> yeah, which is which is kind of a, a well-known bug, but I wasn't familiar with with whatever research you've just mentioned from, from the contact inhibition. It, it's an interesting bug in that it's evolved to live both in the environment and it causes infections. Uh, it can infect plants or uh, mammals. And not many bones are that versatile, so uh, scientists are, are interested in studying it to find out how it pulls off so many different evolutionary roles.
2: Uh, well, I, uh, I certainly don't want it to infect me unless, well, maybe I should have some in my gut, who knows. You're, you're doing some stuff that, that got my attention because you're doing a study where you're looking at 100 people, looking at sampling them like every weekly or daily to know what happens when they change their food or when they eat antibiotics and things like that. Uh, That's fascinating work. And as far as I know, that's never been done before, has it?
3: Well, thanks. I I certainly think it's fascinating too. Uh, And it's related to work that's been done before, but I think we're sort of blazing new territory in terms of the scale at which we're working. Because there's, I mean, you know, there's been a huge explosion of interest in the last five years, let's say, about the microbes mostly bacteria, but other microbes also, that live in us and on us and contribute to our health. And the very first studies, just like the first explorers to go to a, a new continent, they kind of lay out the landmarks. Okay, where's the coastlines? Where's the big mountains? Where do the rivers go? And so the first attempt is a survey. And we've got a lot of that done, certainly for people who live in the developed world, where they're scientists, we've got a good sense of what bacteria, what microbes live where in and on their bodies. We still don't know for people that live in other places, indigenous people around the world, they may have a lot more different things going on than, than we know about. But we're now moving on beyond the first exploration, just to say, okay, what are the microbes there? What's the, you know, What are the plants and animals in the new continent? Now we're at the stage of saying, okay, how do they relate to each other? How do they change over time? How do they respond when the environment changes, a storm comes through, which... Which are the trees that tend to get uprooted or or the ones that tend to persist? When there's been a landslide, which are the first things to come back? Those are the kind of questions we need to ask about our microbiota. What comes back quickly after a perturbation? What takes a long time? Which microbes sometimes will take advantage uh, of an opportunity to get abundant when they aren't usually abundant? And when they get abundant, they can cause problems. We need to understand the dynamics to really know the system.
2: So how long have you been working in, in this field? Because it's, it's a highly unusual field in, in that it's become popular for a little while. But 10 years ago, not a lot of people were paying that much attention <laughs> to what grows in the gut.
3: Yeah, it, it's kind of it's crazy. I mean, my own career is a little bit kind of a microcosm of, of how the whole field has gone. When I was getting my Ph.D., you know, I thought I'd be studying, say, marine microbiology or you know, somewhere where I was going to look at the way microbes interacted with each other uh, out in the environment somewhere, and I was aware that, gosh, the human body might be a really cool environment, and it probably has a lot to do with our health and medical issues. I never thought I'd go that direction myself, uh, but my fascination was really just how do microbes uh, evolve, which, like you said, they do very quickly, to to sort of solve their current ecological problems. How do we interact with other living things? How do we get the resources we need? Well, it was really a series of accidents. The direction I wanted to go kind of fell through and it uh, sort of in short notice, I came to the Relman lab out after my, my PhD at Michigan State, uh, you know, knowing I was gonna study the human microbiota, which I found exciting, but I knew very little, really ironically, about the human body, human physiology. I'm not trained clinically, I'm not an MD. Uh, For me, you know, the human body is an environment for the microbes. And, uh, of course, I've learned a lot more about human physiology and human health issues. Uh, From the microbial perspective, they sometimes care about our health, because if there's bugs that are living in us and we are their environment, just like we ought to care about our, you know, planet Earth environment, they want to care about the health of their planet Les or planet Dave that they live on. Uh, But there's other times that the microbes may have an advantage to say, you know, I don't care if I make Dave sick because I'm going to reproduce a billion times and go jump onto the next guy. So uh, for me, I, I bring this kind of ecological questions and evolutionary understanding to how the microbes interact with us, but it is directly related to, are they keeping us healthy or do they have an advantage at making us sick?
2: So I, I've gotten to the, the point, having spent at least fifty thousand dollars on probiotics. I've taken pig whipworm eggs to see if they would do anything and and I don't trust those little bastards <laughs> they, they, they do not have my best interests at heart except to the extent they want to make sure that they have a walking support system but but the things I want and the things they want oftentimes don't have anything to do with each other now and, and am I a bit paranoid or what?
3: i, I you might be appropriately paranoid I <laughs> It's it's certainly the case, as in a lot of relationships, you can't just assume that the other person in the relationship, the other side of the relationship, that, that they have your interests at heart. They have their own interests, and that's just a fundamental realization. We have to get away from this kind of mythical state that oh, you know, there was some point in the past, this Garden of Eden thing, where everybody wanted everybody else to get along, and every everybody if everybody worked together, all would be perfect. No, you know. Uh, there have been pathogens and disease uh, for as long as there's been living things. There's been some critters trying to eat other critters. And if it's a big critter eating another critter, you call it, say it's a predator. But if it's a bunch of little critters eating you from the inside, we call it a pathogen. I mean, that's all natural, but it doesn't mean that I want it to happen, have it happen to me. Um, but the, the trick is, I think with a lot of relationships, there are times when you can set up a situation where your interests and the interests of these other living things actually coincide. Yeah. And it turns out that the evolution of multicellular creatures, plants and animals both, but I'll talk mostly about animals, the evolution of uh, animals with their ho- the associated microbiota actually is one of those cases where you can expect there to be a convergence of interests. And the reason for that, this is directly got tying into my ecological and evolutionary sort of training and background, you know, if the microbes are specialized to live on and in people, they want people to, to be a habitat. Uh, they could get to that habitat by spreading quickly between a bunch of people, but for most of human evolutionary history, there weren't a lot of people living close by each other. It was, you know, a small tribal group, you know, kin group you know several dozen families 100 people 1000 people maybe that it would interact over a year you know a pathogen that that spread very easily would very quickly infect those 1000 people and if they all died the pathogen would die so the pathogen would would maybe benefit from turning down its virulence so it didn't kill people so quickly but even then it spreads to all 1000 people what does it do next well its best strategy is to make sure that that 1000 group tribe not only continues to survive but has lots of offspring, has lots of healthy kids. If the evolutionary fate of us and our microbes are closely intertwined, we want to keep them going because they help us with nutrition, with uh, fighting off the, the pathogens we do encounter, and the microbes that depend on us want to keep us healthy and fit. One of the keys here is that the our offspring, the things that we want, we want to have a long, happy life, lots of kids, that those have to be the habitat for the microbes that live in us. The microbes have to count on saying, well, if I keep my host healthy and fit, there'll be offspring for me to get passed to. Uh, It's that transmission across generations that will give the microbes an incentive to say, we want to keep people healthy and strong. And it's the transmission horizontally from person to the next person to the next person that lets a microbe say, I don't care how healthy my host is because I'm just going to jump ship to somebody else. So that's where it's appropriate to be skeptical. If you get a bug that isn't committed to your evolutionary future, it's going gonna, it's gonna to be happy to, to make your life miserable if, if it gets an advantage that way. So you want to be living with bugs that are committed to you so you you, know, you can commit to them. Say, all right, I'm going to keep you healthy. I'm going to eat the things that are going to keep those gut microbes there. It's going to provide the signaling, the immune regulation, you know, all the other things. In exchange for having the chance to spread through your family and your kin,
2: it sounds kind of like a little wedding ring would be in order.
3: Yeah, it it it'd be hard to make as many of them as you might need. <laughs> you know, there's more there's more microbial cells in your gut than there are stars in the galaxy.
2: And, and and bacteria fingers are in short supply anyway, so yeah, it's the wrong form factor. But, but I I wrote about something in in the bulletproof diet, and I, I I had a weird experience. I was looking at what happens when you when you try to gain weight on a high fat, low carb diet I'm in ketosis. Mm-hmm. So I ate stupid amounts of calories, like up to four thousand five hundred calories a day. I quit exercising, I slept five hours or less a night, and I ate lots and lots of coffee with butter and uh, this brain octane oil, which is caprylic acid, which is essentially an antimicrobial. And I I, I did this, and I lost weight over the course of almost two years. I actually grew a six pack, which, <laughs> which violates all the laws of thermodynamics, which actually were not thermodynamic systems, oops. Yeah. But um, uh, anyhow, all this happened, and When I searched for reasons that this may have have happened, there's six or eight of them I read about in the book, but the one that caught my interest the most was about the gut biome. And I I wanted to ask your opinion on this theory so that we can throw it out as a bad theory, Mm -hmm. (laughs) or we can maybe say that there's some merit to further research. Um, What I found was a, a mouse study That looked at the effect of coffee plus a high saturated fat diet. I have no idea. Some researchers in China basically did this. And what they were testing was uh, the suppressive effect of fat on bacteria. In other words, fat kills bacteria. They don't like it. They don't feed off it very well. At least most of them don't. And they were looking at the uh, proliferative effect of polyphenols from coffee that it feeds the um, Bacteriodides family and the fat suppresses the Firmicutes family. And the theory that I brought forth in the book is that, well, the Firmicutes family, which includes like lactobacilli and things like that, Mm -hmm. that's for people listening, I'm guessing you know these families way better than I do. Uh But this family makes something called fasting-induced adipose factor. Which means when they're, when they're getting extra sugar, they send a signal to the body that's normally done by the liver. They copy the liver signal and say, store extra fat. Because I want to make sure that my host doesn't starve to death. So I'll make them extra obese just in case I need it. And then if the bacteria has no fuel, it uses the same hormone and says, all right, now it's time to burn extra fat to make sure the host stays alive. So they're amplifying my liver's ability to, to make my... Uh, make my energy regulation work. And by smacking all bacteria down with <laughs> with fat and then feeding the ones that don't have fasting-induced adipose factor, the ones associated with uh, being lean instead of obese, um, that this could be one of the reasons that Bulletproof Coffee had this effect on me. Am I totally out in left field or is this a reasonable theory? I'm, I'm really curious.
3: Well, uh, I have to say there's, there's absolutely... Not the grounds that scientific evidence doesn't exist to say yes, this is what's happening, but it's not crazy either. It's it's not uh, you know implausible. It's not impossible that this is happening. There are some pieces of this that actually are sort of uh, known to happen. We know that the microbes in our gut influence our hormonal regulation, and I could be wrong, but I don't I don't think the microbes are actually making the FIAF hormone. I think they influence the um, amount of of that hormone that's made by our own body. I could be wrong because there are... are,
2: Yeah, I'll check that one out. Yeah, I I could be wrong too.
3: It is is the case. The reason I'm saying that I don't think the bacteria are making it is not because bacteria can't make things like that. There are plenty of of chemical compounds that if our bodies made them, the sort of human physiologist would say, oh, that's a hormone. Look at how it signals. Look at how it has dedicated receptors to make it. And the only reason... And it's not called a hormone is because it's made by a bacterium instead of a, instead of a mammalian cell. So, so it's not like there's anything that's sort of too chemically complex or anything like that. The bacteria can make whatever they want. It's just, it's. Just, I'm not aware specifically that the fiaf hormone has been shown to be made by bacteria, but it okay. is absolutely clear that bacteria in our gut can send signals to our cells that make our cells produce either either more or less fiaf in, in different circumstances. Um, so. Are there gut microbes that are uh, able to influence our hormones that specifically influence our metabolism, the degree to which we sort of uh, pack the calories into stored fat or burn the calories to have a higher uh, you know, body temperature and uh, higher resting uh, metabolism rate and more ability to exercise? Yes, there are absolutely gut microbes that influence that process. Are there things that we can do in our diet that change the proportion of gut microbes? Yes, we know that for a fact. So is it possible that changing our diet will influence our metabolism in addition to any direct effects because of the indirect effects? The diet changes the microbes, the microbes change our hormonal regulation? Yes. Not only is that possible, we know it happens, but we don't have all the details worked out to say here's the roles that these bacteria play, here's the roles that those bacteria play, here's the specific diet that has this effect or that effect. We don't have those mechanisms at all worked out and it's going to be a very complicated story to tell that may well be different for you and for me and quite possibly for somebody who grew up in a different part of the world and has a very different composition of the microbiota. But there is absolutely a story to be told here, uh, but it's not probably going to be as simple as what you laid out. And I, I know you didn't think that that was really truly the only story to be told there either.
2: Um, it, it was it was one of eight <laughs> hypotheses. <laughs> yeah. um, and I just looked in my Mendeley because I, I I do research and stuff reasonably well. And you're correct. It is a suppressive effect on FIAF. It's not that yeah. they make it. So thanks for thanks for having your science yeah. down. Now, uh, so it, if we understand this is a really complex system that 's inconvenient because we 'd like to be able to basically say you know we 're all robots, so if you just you know change the battery, everything happens but it, it's just, that just simply is a bad model so
3: and we know that because we all go to the
2: doctor and a
3: hundred people with the same condition or apparently the same condition go to the doctor, they all get the same prescription and it works for some of them. It doesn't work for some of them. It works for some of them, but has bad side effects. Some of them, you know, we know that people are different, yeah. or physiology is different, and the same treatment doesn't always do the same thing.
2: So, so I'm, I'm one of those those challenging cases where I've, I've always gone in with, oh, I have like oh a dozen symptoms, and there's weird stuff going on, and, and I've actually did a documentary about the root cause of that, which was not bacterial, it was fungal for me,
0: mm-hmm.
2: and. One of the effects that uh, fungal mycotoxins, including antibiotics, <laughs> have on bacteria is they radically change what the bacteria do, the, even the, the shape and form of bacteria. So what happens when someone is uh, someone takes antibiotics like what's what's the what what's the reaction in the gut microbiome knowing that different antibiotics are different things, but kind of walk people listening through what happens then
3: well, let me be sort of. Right out there saying the shortest answer, the shortest honest answer to that question is we don't know. We do know some things, but we have to acknowledge we really don't understand in detail all the effects, and that's yeah. part of why we're doing exactly the study we're doing is that we'd like to uh, not just do what you know the scientists were doing decades ago when they were focused on hey somebody's got an infection here's a you know a compound that looks like it kills that bacterium in a petri dish, let's make them swallow it, see what happens. And so the infectious disease doctors looked at what they cared about, which is the patient health and the progress of the infection. So we have some sense, it's not my area of expertise, but we have some sense of uh, what the antibiotics do to the microbes that we're trying to control or eliminate and how they work, at what concentration they work, You know how resistance develops. That area is somewhat well understood. But what has not been studied nearly as much is this topic that's been important only in the last few years of saying, wow, there's a bunch of microbes we depend on for health. How are they affected by antibiotics? So we we know the things we do know. Pretty much any bacteria or any antibiotic you care to name, uh, it will affect some bacteria in our gut or in any complex community, and it will leave other bacteria relatively untouched. Some microbe or some antibiotics will, will take out a lot of microbes and leave only a few untouched. Others will have the opposite effect. They'll be more narrow spectrum. Uh, And this is even before we develop the so-called acquired antibiotic resistance. Just intrinsically, some microbes are sort of uh, just by the way they make a living uh, they aren't affected by certain antibiotics. Beyond that initial, either bugs are susceptible or not, even the the microbes that get uh, damaged or killed by antibiotics initially can acquire, they can evolve the resistance. And so which microbes are affected or not, is kind of a moving target. Uh, Well, picture you've got a very complicated ecosystem with a lot of interacting organisms, the Amazon rainforest example. And you went in and just took, you know, 20% of all the species present, some plants, some animals, you know, some fungi, just different sorts of critters, and just dramatically changed them. You know, made some of them extinct, made some of them... Half as abundant as they used to be, it's going to have ripple effects through all the other microbes, even microbes that weren't affected, even these other living creatures that aren't affected, like the example of a tree in the rainforest that you didn't affect in this experiment, but it's pollinated by a microbe, by, a, by an organism that, that is affected. You know, That organism that seems to be resistant to the antibiotic uh, still may get damaged. Because it relies on an organism that was damaged by the antibiotic. Once you have changes in the community, some of them are direct changes because certain microbes get wiped out, others are indirect changes, it now changes the chemical environment of the gut, and that causes further changes. You know, so you know what's most remarkable to me after looking at the antibiotic effects for a while? It's not what a dramatic effect the antibiotics have, it's how resilient our communities are. It's astounding that we can swallow these drugs and mostly bounce back with no side effects. There are definitely some cases where there are side effects, sometimes some serious ones. Some of them are directly from the antibiotics. Some of them are, are sort of due to the change in composition. But most of the time, for most people, we can take antibiotics and our microbi- microbial communities uh, are resilient. They come back to, to mostly where they were before and we go on more or less in a healthy state. It's a shame that that happens because what it means is we've gotten way too used to prescribing antibiotics unnecessarily. So the more subtle damage that occurs is not something we're picking up on. Yeah. Uh, and now we're realizing, okay, it did seem like things mostly bounced back. And you ask someone, what's your health today? You had to take antibiotics two months ago. How are you feeling today? Great. So the antibiotics didn't have that effect, but maybe 10 years from now, you're five or 10 pounds heavier than you would have been otherwise. And you'll never know it was because of the antibiotics. Uh, but it turns out it did have an effect on your health that was more subtle, more long-term. And and if the antibiotics were so poisonous so quickly, we'd never use them, then we'd never be day- facing the more long-term problems that I think we are facing.
2: It, it... It's also true that a lot of people don't really have a good radar for how am I feeling today versus two days ago? Like Our memory of how we were feeling is is not quantitative. Unless you sit down and you say, on a scale of one to 10, I'm feeling like nine today, and then you can see patterns like, oh, wow, maybe I did not have My sleep was down for the month after I took my antibiotics, but that's just not visible to to normal people who aren't doing quant, uh, quantified self kind of stuff. Uh, so. I also believe, like you, that that this is a major problem, and I'm interested because I took antibiotics for 15 years, just about every month, because I had chronic sinus infections and strep throat that just wouldn't go away. So I'd take it; it would die down, and I'd take them again and again and again. And I've I think I've done a pretty good job of rebuilding my gut biome, uh, as far as things go. Like I have a better functioning gut now than I have um, throughout my life, and. I still have a few food allergies left over. But how do you go about rebuilding this? Like okay, now you've taken out this twenty percent of the species in the Amazon. Well now you want to fix it. So what do you do?
3: Yeah, that's that's a a very important question as you know, and I'm sure a lot of your listeners realize too, because you know, most of us don't have the luxury of saying, Wow, I'm lucky I never had any of that happen to me. I'm lucky I've always had a, a healthy diet and I've never had antibiotics. We aren't that lucky. Uh so how do we, what are actions we can take now that will give our microbes the best shot at being their best community to help us be healthy? Um, I won't be, I'll be surprised if in if a couple of decades, we aren't at the state of saying, oh, here's a list of microbes, or more importantly, microbial functions that everybody needs. Let's see what you've got. Here are specifically what we would need to add to bring you back into balance. We don't have the knowledge today to do that. Uh, you know, Many of us in the field think we're, go- we're going in the right direction, we're going to get there. But for now, we can't offer a prescription. And uh, I'm sure some of the probiotics that are out there, uh, they have demonstrated beneficial effects in some contexts. Uh, it doesn't mean that those are the only good bugs or that you need always those bugs Uh, It doesn't mean that if you have those good bugs, there aren't other good bugs that you can't buy that you also need. And so for me, the probiotic uh, approach uh, is not the first thing I think of. Uh, I think of providing the environment that the bugs need. I want to, you know, think of it like the garden. If I've got the best seeds in the world, but I don't have well-prepared soil, I don't provide the sunlight, the water you know, the conditions that that are going to let those seeds grow, it doesn't matter how much money I spend on seeds or how many seeds I put there. But if I really pay attention to what the environment is that these living things need, I'm able to uh, get some probably good results without even all that, that much invested in the seeds themselves because the, 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 the plants can grow uh, from a few seeds and provide a flourishing community. So I focus on... Uh, what food am I feeding to the my gut microbes? And the prebiotics—that'd be a fine thing. To, you know, some prebiotic supplements are, are sure—I'm sure—are helpful. I prefer to get my kind of bacteria food just from eating a, a diverse diet myself. All the prebiotics we can get pretty much are uh, plant-derived uh, complex polysaccharides. So I'm just going to eat a, a wide diversity of plants: some fresh, some some in raw, some cooked, because. You know, different compounds are either uh, damaged or brought out by the cooking process. Uh, Just a wide diversity of different stuff, because most of those microbes that have evolved with us for countless generations would have evolved with us at a time when people were eating a a diverse plant-based diet. And I'm not saying that meat is necessarily bad. I think a a meat-only diet or a very high meat diet probably isn't the way to go. Yeah, I think. That um, you know, the absence of diversity in our diet is is probably a bigger problem than the presence of any one single component. So I tend not to be fanatic about oh my god that's toxic you can't ever eat that because it'll kill you. Uh, it's more if you're if you're focused too much on any one thing, if your diet is is too much for too long just one subset, you may wind up with a lot of microbes that are part of a healthy community but usually aren't so dominant. So an imbalance of what otherwise would be healthy microbes can also be a problem. So a diverse-ranging diet that supports a diverse community of microbes, that's what I can control. I can't control necessarily, because I can't buy in a a probiotic supplement, I can't uh, control the thousand different species of, of microbes that are in there. I have to just sort of hope that they've either persisted even just a few of them have survived and they'll come back when I provide the right diet, or that there'll be these chance rare events where I'll pick up something, horizontal transfer, uh, of some microbial strain that I need, but I don't have right now because I either didn't get it from my family or I got it wiped out from antibiotics, but I happen to hang out with people that have a healthy lifestyle and I just so happen to pick it up from them somehow. So if I've got the healthy environment for the microbes, they're gonna probably find a way to get there and then they can flourish.
2: Now, if you put on your evolutionary biologist hat and you go back to the, the idea of hunter-gatherers, uh, and I, I've seen the advice to eat eat a lot of, of you know, varieties of food, but I'm thinking back to our, our cavemen. So there's meat and uh, the fermentable collagen in meat, which is a, a major source of, of food for bacteria. Like That's mm-hmm. the, the meat fiber that bacteria can eat. And then there's also the vegetables in season, mm-hmm. but the variety of those isn't that big, like, like it, it varies seasonally. But, but what we're doing today is like, oh I had Thai, and then I had Indian, and then I had pizza, and then I had this, like it seems like, like that is a, a wide variety of foods, but the, the gut biome must be like bouncing all over the place because you're not gonna digest any of those well because it takes time for the, the microbiome to adjust to the types of food that are in the environment around us. Or at least that's my question, doesn't it?
3: Well, well, it's it's a good question. What's the diversity that matters to the gut microbes? So, you're absolutely right. For the you know, we think about you know, our hunter gatherer ancestors. Uh, we absolutely shouldn't think of you know what is the diet they had as if they ate the same thing every day. Absolutely, their diet was highly variable. There were times when they were hungry for long stretches of time, and they were going to be eating anything they could find. You know, they were breaking the kind of the new buds off the end of twigs and chewing on them very low quality food you gotta like the pandas you know that have to eat you know pounds and pounds and pounds of bamboo because it's digested so poorly you know we pretty much know that uh, current hunter-gatherer societies of which there are very very few uh but our ancestors they would have periods of time when they'd be eating that low quality food they'd have a, a kill and they'd be gorging on meat for some period of time uh you know the hadza in tanzania that have been studied a lot recently when they can find honey it, it may wind up being most of their calories for, for, for you know, some stretch of time. Uh, but then at other periods of the year, uh, during the dry season, there's a lot of uh, animals grabbing around watering holes. They've got more meat. During the wet season, the animals are dispersed. When they can't do anything better, they can always dig up tubers. But that's kind of the lowest priority food for them is this, you know, sort of hard, starchy, woody things they can chew on and get some benefit from. Over the course of a year... Or several years perhaps, they've got a wide variety of stuff, but on a day-to-day basis, they may be gorging on their favorite food when it's available and being forced to eat a lot of some sort of you know, boring, monotonous, not very appealing food when nothing else is available. Well, what do we see? Like you say, I can I can go out and, you know, go Thai, go Mexican, you know, do a home cooked meal all within the same week. But if the ingredients are similar, it's you know, uh, broccoli and the Thai food. It's, it's you know, when I make pizza at home, I put broccoli on that. You know, it's, uh, you know, uh, it might be the same relatively limited set of ingredients that are used to prepare what looks like, in a culinary sense, and with spices and the way things are, are prepared, really looks like and tastes like different cuisines, but the chemical composition of that food to our microbes may not look that diverse at all. Uh, so it is, it is the case that uh, all the different sort of, you know, meat sources we get, it doesn't, the chemical difference between say, uh, you know, beef versus pork uh, isn't that big. You know, by the, by the time you get sort of fish and chicken, you know, you're getting a, a bit bigger diversity. But the diversity that's found uh, in the chemical composition of the plant sweet is just simply greater. Oh yeah. Than the chemical diversity of the meats we eat, and so to get a diverse range of things in our diet, it's a better, sort of truer and easier advice to follow. To say you can get that diversity by eating a lot of different types of of, of plants and nuts and uh, you know whatnot, rather than thinking I can I can really try to get all these different exotic meats and you know rattlesnake and buffalo and and whatnot. <laughs> yeah,
2: that, that's, that's not that going to be that different well.
3: anyway. Uh, but I'm not, I'm, not, I'm not saying that uh, it's not worthwhile to eat, you know, have different sources of, of animal protein as well, you know, dairy and eggs and, and different types of meat. Uh, but the things that most of our gut microbes uh, are mostly gonna have evolved to uh, be using for their food sources are the complex polysaccharides in plants, that uh, our bodies don't digest, and so they make it through the stomach and small intestine to get to the large intestine where the microbes, you know, get to ferment them.
2: That's, I would say, extremely well-documented. Like, we were meant to to grind up plants in our gut, and uh, certainly my my nutritional recommendations are eat a plate full of vegetables, a moderate amount of very high-quality antibiotic-free grass-fed animal protein, and put lots of fat on there. and the fat may be bad for the gut biome, depending on which what you're trying to do with it. But it sure does make your brain work better, yeah. and uh, uh, there's certainly debate about about that.
3: I actually wanted to jump jump back in there. You know, you mentioned that at the beginning about how uh, you know fat having this sort of antimicrobial effect. It's not that simple. So you know there definitely are some microbes that seem to get knocked down when when people are eating a high fat diet. There's other microbes that thrive on that. So I don't think it's accurate to have kind of a blanket. A statement about antimicrobial effects.
2: Oh, I, um, I we, was talking specifically about caprylic acid as a, more yeah. of a broad spectrum. Just yeah. just the C eight MCT. But um, I, correct me if that's wrong. Yeah. Too.
3: Well, I, I don't know. I, I am okay. not I'm not familiar about the kind of the, the MCT uh, okay. story in terms of of how it will act uh, on microbes. I would almost bet though if people have looked and said it's it sort of has antimicrobial effects in a broad way, that was. Probably work that was done in pure cultures in the lab, and Probably. it does not imply that that same phenomenon it might be. But it's not a guarantee that the same thing is going to happen in the gut. Uh, as I understand it, I think a lot of a lot of the the those uh, triglycerides, especially the medium chain ones, are going to be absorbed uh, mostly higher up in the GI tract. So Correct. there may not be a whole lot of them that that wind up uh, making. Even if we're eating a lot of them, they may not get to the large intestine where most of the microbial fermentation is happening. So those bugs down there may not care much one way or the other if you're eating a lot of it. So if it's if it's good for yeah. your brain, don't avoid it just because you think it's going to hurt your gut microbes. They'll probably be just fine.
2: That's a really interesting perspective. I hadn't thought of it. Now let's shift gear to talking about fat a little bit, not just eating it, but uh, obesity. Let's talk about gut bacteria and obesity. Um, what do they have to do with the calories you eat? Uh, like, just kind of give me the give me your understanding of this from your your interesting perspective.
3: Well, as as you well know, you know the the sort of thing we were we were taught uh, growing up is that okay, this is this is really just an arithmetic problem that that you know, you know, this is the number of calories you burn based on your activity, and this is some number for the calories you eat that we can measure just by burning food in a sensitive way to measure how much heat it gives off. And it's just an arithmetic problem. If the calories that you eat, subtracted by the calories you burn off by exercise, is a positive number, you're gonna gain weight and over a lifetime you get fat. Um, Well, that's not wrong. It just (laughs) doesn't provide nearly the level of detail that we need because it turns out that uh, the amount of calories actually extracted from the food isn't just the same number for you and for me. You know, you can eat the same diet I do But the calories on the plus side that you extract may be very different than the calories I extract. And a big part of that difference, not all of it probably, but a big part of it is what are the gut microbes we have? You know, some of us will have gut microbes that are really, really good at getting more energy out of food, or we we may have. This is not very well documented, but I think um, many of the researchers in the field, including myself, think it's likely that different people may have uh, gut microbes that are sort of more specialized. I may have a gut microbiota that's really good uh, at the kind of, you know, degrading the polysac the plant polysaccharides from the brassica family, because I eat a lot of them and, and the allium, the onions and stuff. That's a big part of my diet. Somebody who's eating different stuff, if we did eat the same meal that's rich in the, you know, broccolis and cabbages and and onions, maybe my microbes do a great job extracting those calories and the other person does a poor job. But We switch to eating a meal that is more like the other person's typical diet. Their microbes do a good job of getting those calories out and mine don't. So we can't just say blanket. Person A always gets more more calories from their diet than person B. It may well be dependent on who is eating what diet, how many calories we get. We know for sure the number of calories we get from food varies from person to person, even if the food is the constant. And then the other piece of it is that our body's tendency to take calories and either burn them by having a high metabolic, a resting metabolic rate, even independent of how much we choose to exercise. Just our our body temperature, our basal metabolic rate is influenced by our hormonal system. Our hormonal system is influenced by our gut microbes. So that's another way that our gut microbes change not the plus side of how many calories we extract, but the negative side, how many calories we burn or conversely, store as fat cells. So it's still an arithmetic problem. If the calories we're gaining are greater than the calories we're we're burning, we are going to that energy has to go somewhere. But how much we do each of those two things is dependent on a lot of aspects: what exactly we're eating, how our, our gut microbes interact with that, how our human physiology may be different and interact with that.
2: So, so it's safe to assume that I have the bacon digesting biome, and we're good to go. Uh,
3: you probably have a, a, a gut microbiome that's really good at tolerating the bacon. Whether <laughs> whether there's much bacon left by the time they see it, I mean, maybe it's all taken care of uh, and absorbed into your body by the time it gets uh, to the end of the small intestine.
2: I, I've been tested for having high levels of bacon receptor hormone, so yeah, that, that could be it. <laughs> so. so uh, uh, okay, that, that's a great overview of, of bacteria and, uh, and how they affect that equation because there are so many variables for calories in, calories out that I, uh, as a former 300-pound guy, I sort of roll my eyes when people say, oh, it's just simple, eat less. Uh, I started becoming a biohacker when I noticed that I ate less than all of my thin friends uh-huh. uh, and that I worked out more than all of them and I was still fat and I'd been doing it consistently and I just realized, wait, like there must be other variables. And I didn't at the time think about gut bacteria, but obviously now knowing what you just talked about, it would have been. A really well,
3: let good me thing. let me add one other thing. I didn't I didn't bring this up here, but this is this is maybe the key, uh, one of the keys, uh, maybe the most important key underlying a lot of these phenomenon. Uh, when our bodies are feeling under attack, it changes our physiology. I mean, think of it the simplest you know thing to imagine. You know, if it's a life or death situation, you're there, the hunter-gatherer tribe, and it's like, I'm, I'm going to get either uh, fight off the saber-tooth uh, or I'm its meal. Uh, your body's priority is delivering energy for you to, you know, fight back, run away, do something. If your body's fighting against pathogens or uh, an infection, it's a higher priority for that. Yeah. your, your body to take care of that And anything long-term is is less important, because if you don't live long enough, long-term doesn't matter. Uh, Well, when our bodies have an inflammatory condition going on, somehow we're reacting as if, okay, there's some pathogens to fight off, something that we need to be doing. Um, Our body's devotion of resources to the kind of regular, ongoing maintenance function goes way down, because the priority is, okay, fight off the immediate threat. There are bacteria... That can establish reasonably high populations in our gut that are really good at signaling our bodies to be inflamed. Yeah. Chronic low-grade inflammation can be exactly what happens from a certain composition of the gut microbiota, and now your body is in the state of saying, "Well, I don't really need to put much energy into maintaining a healthy state because it's a priority you know, to fight off uh, the invaders, and you know I may not be." Uh, able to gather food for a because I'm going to be sick. I'm going to be laid up here. So the priority will be to conserve calories as much as possible. So, you know, try to not burn things. You know, if you've got a bit of excess, you know, put it in the fat cells now. Um, it does turn out that the, a typical sort of Western developed world diet tends to promote bacteria that promote low-grade inflammation. And the low-grade inflammation may be a major source of the obesity as well as you know, other chronic diseases, uh, you know, heart disease, cancer, you know, uh, autoimmune diseases may all be linked into this. I don't want to sound as if, oh, my gosh, this is the one thing that everybody knows is the, is the true source of all of our problems. It's not going to be that simple. No. But uh, chronic low-grade inflammation is definitely not a good thing. It's far more abundant in the population in this country and the developed world than it should be. And our diet that influences our gut microbiota may be a big piece of that.
2: It's pretty safe to say that chronic low grade inflammation from any source is a risk factor and you wanna get rid of that. And of course the bacterial source would be one, but there's lifestyle and diet and so many things can can drive it. But anything pollution. that put yeah, yeah, pollution, mercury, anything that that drives it up, you've gotta do something about it. Well now, here's here's a question related to that we talk about eating but on the bulletproof diet specifically for the gut biome as well as some ecological reasons I recommend flat out grass-fed meat or no meat mm-hmm. like simply don't don't eat meat that's been fed grain because well most of that stuff that's been fed grain also has problems with the bacterial composition of its gut it has inflammatory um, fatty acids in it but also, you don't want low-grade antibiotics messing with your with, with your gut. So I, I really just don't eat uh, industrial meat because I like what's going on in my gut right now and I don't want to change it. How important is this mass use of antibiotic in our livestock uh, to the work you're doing, and just are you worried about that?
3: Uh, so if I put on my uh, sort of strict... Uh, scientist evidence-based cap and say all right you know what what's been clearly demonstrated to be the case uh i have to say and it sounds like something that would come you know from the, the uh department of agriculture or the the fda and say well mm-hmm. there's not sort of documented proof that uh, the exposure that humans have to low concentration of antibiotics due to industrial agriculture has any sort of measurable health effect. It's, it's not been documented. Okay, that's a true statement. However, what do, I, what do I kind of suspect might be going on? Well, scientists, or not scientists, but, but food producers for you know, 50, 60 years have known, hey, when we give these kind of low doses of antibiotics to our food animals, you know, not stuff that's concentrated enough to uh, treat an infection, but just low grades, Um, they put on weight faster. Gosh, as as a, as a, as a farmer, I can, I can make more money. Uh, you know, I don't need to spend as much on buying food. If I, if I, you know, put low doses of antibiotics in the feed that I am providing and my animals put on weight faster, I can sell them for more money. I can sell them faster. Um, so if the animal producers have known for decades that, uh, Regular exposure to low doses of antibiotics promotes weight gain. Uh, it seems like the likeliest hypothesis: animals are all really pretty closely related, especially you know, mammalian. You know, physiology doesn't vary all that much across you know all the different types of animals there are. It may not be proven, but the best guess would be people aren't going to be any different. That exposure to low doses of antibiotics over an extended period of time may very well promote weight gain. If you didn't know the answer, if you didn't have proof, that would be the way to bet. That's what I think, and and yet for reasons that I, I, I probably don't need to go into here, uh, our government regulatory scheme does not choose to take that approach, to say, all right, the sensible bet would be that these things are contributing to obesity. And I'm sure you you're well aware of what the reasons are why our government doesn't doesn't uh, quickly take steps like that.
2: Because uh, we don't pay them enough taxes, obviously.
3: Yeah, <laughs> there are some people paying money in in the system here in places, but we don't need to go into go into that.
2: Exactly. Well, well, there's another thing that that I haven't heard addressed, and something that that is, I think, of great importance. And and I'd like you to steer me back from that if I'm wrong. So I'm I'm open minded about this, but. Farmers have started spraying glyphosate, or Roundup, on things like wheat. Mm -hmm. They spray it on the crop right before harvest because it stresses the plant, which causes the plant to basically put more energy into protecting the seeds for the next generation because the plant is getting desiccated, it's Mm -hmm. being dried out. And this increases the amount of glyphosate that is left in the food. And this is allegedly not harmful to people because it only activates bacterial pathways that humans don't have. But we have bacteria in our gut, so we're eating this constant low-dose roundup. Have you or has anyone done research into what that does to the gut biome?
3: Uh, I have not, no. And and uh, honestly, I, I'm not aware of anybody who has looked at that specifically. There certainly are, are uh, a lot of people that have looked at, uh, in a general sense, what are risks due to, uh, you know, sort of the, the low doses of exposure, uh, whether it's to Roundup or to other, you know, herbicides and pesticides? What's the, what's the exposure uh, risk to sort of typical people that are that are eating the food they get at the grocery store or you know, the processed food that they 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 buy restaurant meals? Um, well, it's a, it's a hard question to address. And I think it probably is is fair to say uh, what risks there are are probably not huge it's It's not the sort of thing that you know five uh, percent of people are dropping dead within ten years. That's the kind of effect that would be mm-hmm. big enough that that people would would have noticed and paid attention um the so stu- the studies that have, that have been done a lot, they've been looking for these general connections to say, is there a uh, relationship between exposure to low doses of these chemicals and overall human health? I'm not aware of anybody who has specifically said, is there uh, some element of that risk that's due to changes in the gut microbiome or not? Uh, my guess is that the, the intuition of most scientists would be the concentrations of those chemicals are at low enough concentration uh, even if you're never eating any organic food you're always just sort of buying the typical standard produce at, at a regular grocery store um, you still probably don't have a high enough concentration of those things uh, in your gut that you would predict there to be a strong effect it doesn't not to say there might not be some some effects uh, and I certainly wouldn't say that um, the effects are likely to be good if there are effects they probably aren't beneficial Um but, you know, my, my greater concern, uh, I do have a lot of concerns about about this sort of industrial agriculture. My greater concerns are about the effects uh, close to those farms and fields. What, yeah. what are, What's the damage we're doing to the people who have to, you know, work in those fields, to people who live in those communities, uh, to the people who live next to the chemical plants that are making those, those things? Uh, what's the effect on the broader ecology around these, these systems? You know, I, I don't think that that model of... Uh, applying toxins to the environment is a viable strategy, really almost ever in a long-term thing. And, I, and I, I'm not saying it, it, it shouldn't be used sometimes. Yeah. Uh, I certainly, you know, I got pneumonia myself a number of years back, and I was delighted to be able to go to my doctor and get a prescription for a selective toxin. I wanted to swallow that, you know, those pills that had a, a poison for certain microbes. Man, I was delighted to take those. <laughs> But I did take probiotics at the same time. That is one of the situations where I do take probiotics as if I need to take antibiotics. Um, and it doesn't replace everything that, that's probably getting disrupted, but it kind of tides the system over perhaps so that, that there's a, sort of a little bit of a uh, protective buffer to let, uh, let the natural community come back. Uh, but you know, it would be, it'd be good if we didn't rely, if we didn't build uh, sort of entire systems of how our society works around the assumption that we need to be applying toxins to broad swaths of the ecological community, whether that's the ecological community in the Midwest or in our gut. Uh,
2: that's uh, very well said. Now, there's another kind of up-and-coming uh, technology for, for addressing broad swaths of stuff in the gut, uh, something that I first read about and, and considered back when I was really working on my gut uh, and that's fecal transplants. And this is the idea of taking poop from someone who's uh, someone who's got a healthy digestion and introducing it into someone who doesn't have healthy digestion. Yeah, you introduce it the way you're probably imagining. Uh, or the FDA has this thing where they put it into capsules you can swallow as well. And they're ma- seeing if they can market that as a drug. Um, I want to see what they're going to name that drug because it's going to be <laughs> hilarious. But. uh
3: repopulate. <laughs> nice <laughs> it's a Canadian group that they have actually got it's not
2: uh, no way really yeah Is that what they're called? <laughs>
3: it's 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 actually I mean it has been done to just take the the sort of the native stool and put it in a capsule and have people swallow it but there's a Canadian group that to get away a little bit from that ick factor they've got a defined community of 30 different microbes that are gut microbes that that they they sort of grow in pure culture and mix and put into a swallowable capsule and they've shown some good results from it. So it may be kind of a substitute f- uh, fecal transplant in a pill rather than um, an enema of the of the original native material put in a blender. Uh, but anyway, it's it's you're right. It's an area with a lot of interest that if there's a problem with the composition of the gut microbiota, well, let's get a healthy community and put it in there. I,
2: uh, it, it gets a bit awkward, too, if, if you think about that. You just, you just go to Facebook, hey, I'm looking for someone with really healthy poop. Like, like the whole donor screening thing is, is, is very weird. But I did have the uh, advice from actually a couple of experts in the field who said that I, uh, uh, like your best bet is if you have a child who's never taken antibiotics, they probably have a good biome. So use, use that. And I've never, uh, I've never done that. My gut is actually functioning so well now that I'm, I'm really happy, and I, I don't want to mess with it. If I take antibiotics, who knows what I'll do. But I'm not planning to do that either, unless, like you, there's a really good reason. So, what's, what's your take on this? Is this a, a fad, or is this something that's going to continue to be researched and studied, and, and should, should people who are really sick really consider it because the harm isn't that big? Like, like how? Well,
3: it's, it's definitely not a fad in the sense that that it's a life-saving treatment for some people. Uh, The condition for which it's received the most attention and the one condition for which the FDA has said, yeah, you can go ahead and do this. We could regulate it, but we're choosing not to. The condition is uh, chronic inflammation or chronic infection with Clostridium difficile. So disease used to be, you know, sometimes called pseudomembranous colitis, but this is a, a single microbe that produces a toxin or two toxins actually if it gets into high abundance in somebody's gut and starts producing the toxin, it's a life-threatening illness. Um, Even if it doesn't kill somebody, and the majority of people who die from C. difficile are sort of elderly, frail individuals uh, who wound up taking a lot of antibiotics and perturbing their gut microbiota, and the C. diff sort of got established. Uh, There's an increasing number of, of people that are younger and not, say, in hospitals or nursing homes that are getting this, and they may not be killed by it, but it really is incredibly destructive of their quality of life. I mean, you know, many, we're talking perhaps dozens of bowel movements, bloody diarrhea a day. Uh, it's hard to have much of a life if that's what you're facing. And when, you know, in some cases, not always, but in some cases, a single fecal transplant within a day, it's over. It's a miracle cure. And the, and the people who have had that uh, or who want access to that treatment you know, it doesn't become sort of so gross to think about what the treatment is if you're already dealing with dozens of bloody bowel yeah. movements a day. And they're the ones who went to the FDA and say, how dare you regulate this? If right. you try to stop our, our ability to get this by going to our GI docs, you know, there's plenty of instructions online. We're going to be doing this at home ourselves. What do you want? You want a doctor to get involved and screen for pathogens? or You just want me to do it with my, you know, yeah. with my spouse's poop. So, so, that, So that's why the FDA backed off. That's why this treatment's not going away. It's not a fad. It, it really is uh, an amazing medical advance, which, by the way, is not really that new. It's Chinese have known about it since you know, sort of the 4th <laughs> century AD. But um, using it for a lot of other conditions, you know, there's obviously a lot of interest to say, well, not just for this one fairly narrow condition of C. difficile, um, which as, as much as that's sort of a... a Increasing epidemic. There's still nowhere near the number of people with that problem as there are people who maybe are obese and think, "Gosh, can't I just change my gut microbiome?" People with autoimmune diseases. Uh, you know, people who have, uh, you know, Crohn's disease or ulcerative colitis. Uh, there's a lot of sort of hope and expectation uh, that wow, maybe this is going to be the ticket. Um, the evidence that's been collected so far, and it hasn't been a lot of evidence. Uh, For ulcerative colitis, it seems like uh, fecal transplants can be helpful. They're not a miracle cure. They aren't going to have the cure rate that they do for C. difficile. And that's not surprising because ulcerative colitis is a much more complicated disease. It's a sort of vicious cycle interaction between gut microbes and the body's own immune system. Uh, There's far more sort of moving pieces rather than just one microbe producing one toxin. So it's not surprising that it helps, but it's not surprising that it doesn't cure it. Other conditions may be even more complicated. Uh, I think in a way, uh, you know, the fecal transplant as a tool is really gonna be a stand-in. Once we know enough, perhaps in a decade or a couple of decades, we might be able to be much more intelligent about saying, hey, let's get a read on, on what your gut microbe is given that you're a patient with ulcerative colitis, let's look at the functions that are there. Let's go to our shelf of a thousand different probiotics with defined functional contributions and select which eight of them you need. But the next person who comes in, even with ulcerative colitis, will have a different set of microbes that they need. Somebody else comes in with an autoimmune disease, and they're going to get a very different set of microbes. It won't be... One size, well, let's just put somebody's healthy community in there because something in there is probably what you need. Um, in the meantime, until we get to that point, uh, fecal transplants are not zero risk. They're not terribly high risk, but but certainly not zero risk. I mean, you think about the transmission of hepatitis uh, or HIV with blood transfusions, it, you know, it, it shouldn't be sort of taken lightly. Oh yeah, just a casual thing. Yeah, I'll just pop down to the local, you know, the local spa for my weekly fecal transplant. <laughs> you know, people shouldn't be taking it lightly.
2: Yeah.
3: But on the other hand, uh, it's not, you know, to my mind, it's not nearly as scary uh, as, say, multiple courses of potent antibiotics that, you know, were the, you know, only treatment we used to have for C. Difficile.
2: That attitude of well, I'm going to do it at home without help. If you don't make it legal, it is. That's one of the reasons I'm a fan of biohacking. This idea that we have control of our own bodies. And look, if, if someone wants to regulate technologies that you can buy online for a hundred dollars, good luck regulating that. Just like yeah. you've succeeded in regulating marijuana. <laughs> yeah, that that worked out really well. <laughs> <laughs> and alcohol before that, right? These are yeah. technologies for be, for being more human or for for saving your life. And right. so. They deserve study and they deserve caution, and they don't deserve to be hidden because someone didn't say it was okay.
3: Yeah, I I, I agree, and and uh, you know I, I do, you know I I want to I want to say you know I feel bad when I when I when like I did a Reddit ask me anything, and and people were were sending in questions where it was obvious they had a disease or they had a loved one with these yeah. diseases, and it was, it was sort of heart wrenching as the scientists to say. You know, we don't know enough to help yet. We think this is an area where we can learn enough to make a big difference, but we can't yet. You know, sort of give you an answer that's 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 going to help you in your condition. I really feel for people who say, you know, <laughs> I'm going to just try that fecal transplant at home. Uh, you know, I don't want to I don't want to to sound as if I'm um, telling people, okay, that's that's dumb. Don't ever do that. You know. I want to respect people's choices. I, I don't want people to to take it lightly and think that okay, this has just got to be something that's sort of healthy and harmless because it's a fad. You know, be a little more uh, you know cautious with that. Um, but it is it is the case. It's simply the case that uh, humans, as all other mammals, evolved with a huge concentration of a, a tremendous diversity of microbes in our gut. Uh, it's not all that strange. To, to introduce a complex community of microbes back in there. Uh, so the, the idea of a fecal transplant, you know, it doesn't strike me as crazy or gross. Uh, and clearly the, the Chinese physicians from the fourth century who were doing this stuff, you know they must have thought
2: it it had some beneficial effects. Compared to the taste of a lot of those Chinese teas, it was probably easier to work with, that's just me. So, um, we're coming up on the end of the show, and and there's a question that I've asked every guest on the show, uh, except I think episode 77 when I forgot, but hey. (laughs) Well, don't forget. All right, I'm not forgetting this time. And it's given all the stuff that you know, not just about the microbiome, just your whole life's path, if someone came to you and said, look, tomorrow I, I want to perform better at everything I do in life, what are the three most important things I should know about it, or three most important things I should do?
3: Well, it, it's interesting. Uh, I am going to give an answer that goes uh, well beyond my kind of scientific yeah. uh, training specifically, but to to my life. And it is something I'm, I'm going to speak to uh, very much on the basis of my own personal experience. And I would say that... The one single most important thing is going to be the um, attitude you bring to having a a compassionate view towards yourself and the others in your life and to all living beings, Uh, and even if people are sick with an illness that cannot be cured, uh, they can have happy and productive Uh, lives for as long as as their life lasts, which is really all of us, any of us can ask. Um, But in addition to that uh, attitude and approach that's sort of a mental, spiritual, emotional thing, uh, a healthy diet and lifestyle uh, in terms of sleeping, exercise, uh, you know, Something that bridges all these is being part of a community of people that you uh, love and are loved by, that you belong to, that there's meaningful relationships there. You know, the quality of that life and lifestyle, the diet uh, that you eat, and the attitude you have, uh, that defines a good life, I think. And I think people are, are, you know, you can simply look at, look at what studies have been done about who is happy and why or what are changes people can make that reliably lead from kind of unhappy states to happiness and they get tied up with that. Um, the little details of, you know, uh, this minor aspect of diet versus that are probably not the whole story. The big picture of these, of these items, uh, you know, pay attention to that first.
2: Uh, that's a That's a great answer and and thank you. and uh, um, I've heard some of those before, but that your answer on compassion was was very well stated and, and thanks
3: well I, I, it's a pleasure to talk to you
2: I, I, This is a really fun interview thanks for for going deep and still making it so people can understand what uh, you know understand what we're talking about have Have an awesome day, but first, I want you to tell people where they can find out more about your research. Um Your name is Les death which is hard to spell. It's going to be in the show notes. But do you have a faculty page or a blog? or like, How do people get a hold of you?
3: Uh, there is a website that we're using to recruit for our study. You mentioned that we're doing the study with 100 people. We haven't got the last few people recruited. Oh. So if people want to be part of our study, they should come to this website. Uh, even if you don't want to be part of the study, the, the website has a lot of microbe-related information, links to both popular articles and scientific articles. And Places you can you know email a question and it'll, it'll get to me or the, the other people working on the study. So I'll give you the shortened URL bit.do/microbes. Uh, that'll take you to to a, a website that will tell you a lot more and let, and let you get in touch with me. Um, if people want to be part of a of a study that over many months involves contributing uh, stool and urine samples for us to for us to examine. Uh, one of the benefits of being involved is that you get to learn about your own microbiota. We will share uh, the data we learn f- about um, from your samples. We'll share that data with you. Uh, and hopefully wow. we'll progress in our understanding of how people's lifestyle affects the microbiota and how the microbiota affects their health.
2: Well, I think you just filled up your study because the, the Bulletproof community is, has no problem with weighing our poop and other things like that. And uh, in fact, at the first, First Ever bulletproof biohacking conference? I, I believe we sold out uh ubiome, uh, awesome. one of the one of the companies <laughs> yep. doing that. So, th- this is yep. an audience who's going to pay attention and wants that knowledge, that quest for knowledge. So, I would be shocked if people didn't go to bit.do slash microbiome to fill out slash the microbes. survey. Oh, sorry, slash microbes. Yeah. I spelled that wrong yeah. bit.do slash microbes, and that'll be in the show notes. And uh, I, I fully support that. I'm not going to sign up myself because I travel so frequently that I'm not carrying buckets of poop around with me on airplanes. The <laughs> TSA doesn't like that. But otherwise, I'm eager for that knowledge myself. So just uh, thanks for the work you're doing. Keep it up. And I really want to see the results of the study.
3: Thanks, Dave. We will be publishing. And you know, maybe we ought to have another interview when I've got some study results. And I'd be happy to come back and share with your listeners uh, how we're moving the science forward.
2: The second you know when the release date is, let me know, and I'd be happy to have you on the show. It'd be really cool to hear what you learned. Thanks, Dave. Bye. Bye Bye-bye.